Well, let's have uh, Zephaniah open in front of us this evening. Uh, again, another one of those, those books that they call the books with the clean pages in church Bibles because we preach on them, I guess, so rarely uh, that they don't have those sort of nasty fingerprints all over them. It's not a well-known book, I guess, Zephaniah. Uh, and so this evening, I'm hoping I'll give you a bit of a handle on it and we'll see the kind of the key truth of it shining through, I hope. Let's, let's see how we go. Now, every one of us uh, ignores warnings from time to time. It's what we do, isn't it? We ignore, we ignore warnings. Sometimes we take notice of warnings. Uh, sometimes we ignore them. You know, children are a classic example of this, aren't they? You can warn them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that they're going to actually take heed of the warning, does it? Uh, even if you give a, like a, a really sort of, you, you outline the consequences, and the consequences are going to be bad. Sometimes they just try their luck. And I think we ignore warnings because largely we either do it because we think we know better than the person making the warning, or we decide that actually, you know, all things in balance, I don't mind living with the risk. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll live with the risk of it. You know, my children do not understand why anyone still smokes. It's interesting, isn't it? They see the, 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 the packets lying on, on the ground out in the street, and almost the entire packet is a warning, right? With horrible pictures, usually, and a, these will kill you. Yeah, it's, it's not, not mucking about, is it, anymore on the cigarette packet? This is going to kill you, it says on it. And yet people still smoke. That's puzzling to a child, by the way. That's really, but why, why are you killing yourself? Do you not like life? Um, and sometimes the consequences of not obeying a warning are, are trivial, and sometimes they're not. So sometimes they're trivial. A few years back, and I wasn't expecting her to be here this evening, uh, but Sarah managed to run out of petrol uh, on our car twice uh, in the space of, I think it was less than a month. And the question really is, you know, well, wasn't the, uh, wasn't the warning light coming on? Was it, was it no warning lights? Well, yes, it was. Yes, it was coming on. And yet she decided she would live with the risk. She would, she would chance it. <laughs> I mean, that's a little embarrassing at, at the most. And, you know, it might mean someone has to take a trip out and bring you some fuel. But sometimes ignoring a warning, especially like those given in the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, to ignore those warnings is deathly serious. It's absolute folly. Now, Zephaniah most probably spoke his prophecy, preached his book, his, his prophecy, sometime at the start of Josiah's reign. If you look at uh, the first chapter there, if you get it open in front of you, you see that, uh, that that's, that's where he's preaching. He's an interesting character, Zephaniah, in that he's the only one of the prophets that sort of be, seems to be able to trace his, his line back to royalty, you'll notice, he takes his line right back to Hezekiah, that good king that we, we heard about last month, the king who saved God from the enemies, the mighty enemies of Assyria. And, uh, but these, these days that Zephaniah was preaching in were probably some of the worst days of the kingdom of Judah. And I want us to try and feel how bad these days were. So please excuse me if I really depress you uh, this evening. See, Hezekiah had been a pretty great king. We heard about him, didn't we? You remember how he prayed for the deliverance of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of Syrian soldiers outside the gates and how God slaughtered the Assyrians and he sent the mighty king Sennacherib, 
back home with his tail between his legs to, to, to die, actually. Uh, despite Hezekiah's questionable end, which we looked at, he did lead the nation really well, didn't he? Because he was a godly man, he was a God-fearing man. But his son that followed him was utterly wicked. Manasseh. Now, it's hard to oversell just how wicked that man was. This was the direction that the nation was going to go, the head of the nation. Utterly, utterly wicked. He invited into Judah just about every false god that was going. So he looked at, it's like he went shopping around the nations all around them and said, we'll have that god and that god and that god and we'll just bring them all in and we'll embrace them. He seems to have been particularly fond of, of the gods like Baal and Asherah, fertility gods, and Molech. It's a good name, isn't it? The god Molech, who was just hideous. And the idolatrous stain on the nation was as vivid as ever when Zephaniah started to preach. So all of that stuff was really up on the surface. Now look at chapter 1, verse 4 mentions the widespread worship of Baal, that fertility god. You know, the Asherah pole doesn't take much imagination, does it? This sort of phallic shrine of fertility. Worshipping. Imagine, imagine a, a nation that worships sex. Imagine that. You can't imagine that, can you? Not like us at all. Then verse 5 mentions those who swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. Now, Molech was the god to whom people would bring their children and burn them in the flames. Imagine that. In fact, there's a theory going that Zephaniah's name means hidden of God, the hidden one of God. Some people say that maybe he had a story a little bit like Moses. You know, being royalty, he might have been up for being a sacrifice, a firstborn son's sacrifice. Maybe he was hidden somewhere to protect him. You know, that's what Zephaniah is growing up with, this atmosphere. And then verse 9 talks, look at it, about those who avoid stepping on the thrush threshold. You know what that's a reference to? Does anyone know the book of 1 Samuel? That's an allusion to the god Dagon, the god of the Philistines. It's a brilliant story, one of my children's favorite stories. So if you read 1 Samuel, it, Wemby will preach to this, it's great. So you have the Philistines take the ark of the Lord. Israel's lost the ark, and they take the ark, and they carry it back to their, their country, and they put the ark of God into the temple of Dagon. And there's the statue of mighty Dagon standing before the ark. But they come down in the morning and find that Dagon's fallen over. <laughs> oh, dear. So they pick up the statue, they heave him back up onto his feet, and they go to bed again. The next morning, they wake up to find he's fallen over again. But this time, he's knocked his, own, he's knocked his head off on the threshold of the door. And so a superstition comes up. Mustn't step on the threshold. And that's where Dagon broke his neck. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Can you see the picture painted by Zephaniah of, of an a really idolatrous nation, worshipping every and, every and any god? And under Manasseh... The nation became a people then who would worship almost anything, no matter how vile it was. You know, it could be quite obviously a vile thing. Uh, they would worship it. And they also were a nation that had no time for the word of God. They didn't want to listen to the God of their fathers. And Hezekiah, you'll remember, sought counsel from the prophet Isaiah. 
And uh, so in Jerusalem, Manasseh only, Manasseh take, goes for Isaiah. He only wants to shut Isaiah up. So, you know, the son of this king who'd, who'd valued the counsel of Isaiah now just wants to shut Isaiah up. And eventually, according to the sort of rabbinical literature, at least two sources give varying accounts of this, Manasseh actually hunted Isaiah down. So Isaiah went on the run. Manasseh chased him and found him hiding in a hollow tree, a hollow cedar tree. And the wicked king ordered that the tree be sawn through with the prophet in the middle. And that's a horrible end to to go through, isn't it? And that's probably what's been spoken about in Hebrews chapter 11, if you know that, that, that chapter, where speaking about the heroes of the faith, godly men, the writer says, some were sawn in two. And Jewish people say, oh yes, Isaiah, the days of Manasseh. But uh, by the days of Zephaniah, Judah had probably received then, having hunted down the prophets and shut them up and sawn them in two, had probably received no word from God, really, for a generation. Just silence from God. They rejected God's law. We'll see in a minute just how they'd virtually forgotten that there even was a law. And when you reject God, and you, uh, the God who made you, and you, you embrace and worship false gods, when you stop listening to God, and you start to embrace the world and everything but God, embracing and worshipping created things, things around you, well, the consequence it was and always is a, a complete moral nosedive. You'll see that. Uh, you can see, you can probably plot it out if you've lived long enough in our country and seen a moving away from actually valuing and worshipping God and, and th- taking his law seriously. As you move away from that, it's a nosedive into immorality. It always is. You know, there are some staggering details when you start to look at the history books in the Bible. Two Kings tells us that even the temple in Jerusalem, so two kings talking about when Josiah comes to try and make things better in the nation, he gives, there's, a, there's, there's a report of what goes on. And as you go to the temple in Jerusalem, they had to remove the Baal worship sort of paraphernalia from the temple. They had to take the Asherah pole out of the temple. I mean, just, just, imagine how staggering that is. And in a sort of like a, a line that you can miss as you read over it, it talk, they talk about having to tear down the accommodation for the male shrine prostitutes at the temple of God. Think about that. How far has this nation gone? And Zephaniah would have wandered the streets of Jerusalem and he would have seen the sights, smelled the smells of an utterly pagan nation, a wicked, wicked nation. In fact, two kings... Chapter 21 gives us this summary of the the reign of Manasseh. It says, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins, says God. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Now, what does that mean? You've got to just think about this for a second. God told Abraham, back in the book of Genesis that he had to wait before coming into the promised land, uh, and, and that it would be at least four generations before his people could come into the promised land. Why? Why did they have to wait? Well, God says, because the sin of the Amorites hasn't yet reached its full measure. You know, there are really wicked people living in that land, these Amorites, but they're not quite as bad as they, they could be yet. 
and we're going to wait, we're going to give them time. And it would take at least four generations for the, for the pot to really boil over and for them to be as wicked as they need to be for us to overthrow them. Yet in just one generation, Manasseh brings the nation down from the, the sort of relative moral heights of King Hezekiah, worshipping God, to a state worse than the wickedest evil of the Amorites. Okay, you get, getting a feel for this? Moses, the law bringer, the one who brought the law to the people and wrote it down and preached it to them, had warned that just as the land, it's quite vivid, he said the land, just as the land had vomited out those before them, so it would vomit them out for their immorality, should that be the case. Judah's a disaster. They bring a gag reflex to God. That's what's, what's being said, isn't it? Uh, Manasseh's son, Ammon, just to complete the historical picture, followed in his father's footsteps. He was not going to take the country, the nation, in any different direction. But his reign was mercifully short. Just two years into it, uh, his officials around him, maybe getting a sense that the nation was really messed up, assassinated him. And so, and Josiah will know this and will love this, uh, after those two years, after the assassination, his eight-year-old son Josiah was given the crown. An eight-year-old came to the throne. But under the supervision, quite clearly, of Hilkiah, the high priest at the temple, who seems to have been a pretty moral kind of bloke at the very least. Now, my guess is it was at around about this time, as the boy king comes to the throne, that Zephaniah brings his prophecy to Jerusalem. So that's the background, right? This was an opportunity. It's like a crossroads for the country, isn't it? A chance for Judah to break out of their reckless kind of spiral down into oblivion. So how would this boy turn out? How would this boy king grow up? Which way was he going to go? And perhaps this prophecy helps, helps the nation. Now, the book of Chronicles tells us that just eight years into Josiah's reign, so when he's about 16 years old, the teenage boy, he starts to seek the God of his father, David. That's a good thing, isn't it? And then four years later, this young king decides, with, with only sort of the input from just the fact that he wants to worship God, it would seem, that he wants to bring the nation back, to get them back to the worship, the primary worship at the very least, of the God of their fathers. And Josiah takes radical action. He starts to remove some of the shrines of the false gods that are in the city and, are, and around the city. And then he turns his attention to the temple. Remember that messed up place? 2 Kings chapter 22 tells us that Josiah comes up with it. He's turned his focus on the temple and he sees the temple's in a bit of a bad state. It's a bit shabby. And so he sends his secretary, Shaphan, to the temple one day. He says, go down there and... Arrange the finances, Shaphan. I want you to get the money all sorted out so we can start the renovation work at the temple because it's falling to bits. But Hilkiah, the high priest at the temple, greets Shaphan with the news, Shaphan, we found a book in the temple, a dusty old book tucked in a corner, probably you know, underneath the altar to Baal or something like that. We found it, we dusted it off. And do you know what? It's the book of the law. It's written by Moses. Apparently, no one's seen a copy of this, really, in quite some time. 
It's a mysterious book to them. Now, Shaphan takes the book away and reads it. And then he decides, I have got to let Josiah know about this. So he returns to the king, and it, you can imagine this, the situation. He, just, he gives the financial report. You know, it's not urgent, nothing urgent about this. Let's just give the financial report. So, you know, we've got this money, and you know, I've assigned these builders, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then it kind of slips into the conversation. Oh, and by the way, we found this book, uh, and uh, it's quite interesting, Josiah. Can I read you a little bit from it? And so he starts to read the book of the law of Moses. Remember the law? with the blessings and the curses for going in that wrong direction. He reads it, and when Josiah heard what God's law said, we read, he ripped his clothes. He had heard the word of Moses, the word of God. Long ago, God told the people how they should live, Ten Commandments and etc. How you should live in this land. And he told them, this is what the consequences would be if you didn't do it. We warned of all kinds of horrible curses that would come along. It was quite vivid for the people. If you read through Deuteronomy, you find that actually what happens is Moses sends one group of people up one mountain with a valley between. It sends another group up here. And these lot all shout the blessings of, of obeying God. And that lot shout the curses of not obeying God. It's, it's vivid, isn't it? It's a clear picture. We know where we're going. We know what we should do. And it's all read out to Josiah. Well, the words of Zephaniah then, with all that background, would have come as no shock then to Josiah in the light of this new revelation. It would just be a confirmation. Zephaniah, though, spoke the word of God to the people, to that wicked generation. Now, the book's got a pretty simple structure, so if you want to pop it open in front of you, let me just show you its, its kind of landmarks, just in very broad brushstrokes. Chapter 1, if you look at it, concerns really just God's judgment on Judah. It's God's judgment on God's people in Jerusalem. You even have details like the fish gate, you know, landmarks they would know. It's very Jerusalem, and you are to be judged. That's largely what chapter 1 is about. It's judgment on Judah and great distress and wailing because it's an awful judgment. Chapter 2 then moves us on a little bit in the story, and the judgment starts to focus on the nations around Judah. God's got a bigger view than just Judah. He will punish sin wherever sin is. So you've got the surrounding nations, and that continues on, really, until chapter 3, verse 8. But then chapter 3 from verse 9 onwards, the third and final chunk, really, of the book, is all about the redemption of a remnant from Judah. So it's the buying back, the bringing back, the res restoration. And that is with great rejoicing and singing. So you see the sy symmetry? You're starting with, with judgment, with distress and wailing. And you're ending with this mirror reflection of redemption with rejoicing and singing. That's the picture of the book. It sort of swings, goes through a dip and comes back up again. But the theme of the book, we can't cover all of that tonight, but the theme of the book I do want us to focus on in fact, if you read through it, you'll notice it. It's the repeated phrase throughout the book. Just take a look down and see if you can spot a few of these. Is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. See, it was the prophets during these last years, right at the end of the Old Testament part of the Bible, who started using that phrase. 
And in general terms, it seems to mean the day when, when God will step in and act decisively. It's, if you like, a day when God settles accounts with the wicked and a day when God vindicates the righteous. That's really what's encapsulated in the day of the Lord. And as far as I can see, it almost always has a connection with judgment then. And that certainly is true here in Zephaniah. Maybe if you think of it as it's exam day. You guys got exam days coming up? Yeah? Some of you young people? It's exam day. It's when we will, it's when we will really test to see. It's a day of reckoning, a day of settling accounts, as it were. And it's a phrase that people were evidently familiar with, that, that the man on the street knew this expression. In fact, in Israel, during the days of Amos, I don't know if you remember, we did Amos months back now, people talked about the day of the Lord with great excitement. Everyone was really excited about God, God coming and stepping in, the day of the Lord. They thought it was a red-letter day when God would visit the earth and vanquish their enemies. Excitement. And Amos, in their days, unleashes a stinging critique on that. He says this in Amos chapter 5. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered a house and rested his hand on a wall only to have a snake bite him. It's quite vivid, isn't it? These were a people blind to their own condition. They hadn't even seen the warning light going off on the dashboard. They hadn't seen it. Blind to their condition. Waiting for a day when the wicked would be judged. Thinking they were the righteous, but they were the wicked. So likewise, Zephaniah speaks to his generation some years later in Jerusalem. For Israel and for Judah, the day of the Lord... And, and you really do get this in the Old Testament. It clearly refers in its immediate context. Day of the Lord is the day when their respective kingdoms fell. It's the day when, when the, the big superpowers came down and flattened them. And if they were lucky, took people off into captivity to be slaves. That's the day of the Lord for them. It's a day of reckoning. It's a day of settling the accounts. Well, these were days of horror, these days of the Lord. The enemies who overthrew them were actually merciless. They butchered men and women and children indiscriminately. It was a horror. Chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, which we read earlier, captures the day graphically. Look at some of the words used here and, and see how this is focused in. It's made big here. The great day of the Lord, says Zephaniah in verse 14 is near. It's near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior sh uh, shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope around like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. That's the day of the Lord. And just as God had warned, as the wickedness of the kingdoms reached their fullness, 
The land vomited them out. The land vomited them out. Couldn't stomach them anymore. But that's not the whole story, thankfully. And neither is it actually what the extent of the day of the Lord really refers to. If you look carefully at the way that Zephaniah has constructed his book, you'll notice something very, very interesting. There are some bookends in the sections. In other words, there are bits that start and finish sections. Have a look at this. It's really good for getting to grips with what the book is saying. They start and end each major section of the book. Have a look at them. So in chapter 1, which is all about judgment falling on Judah, remember, it begins with verses 2 to 3 and a much bigger picture. Look at it. Verse 2, I will sweep away, look at the language, everything from the face of the earth. That's big language, isn't it? Declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds like the flood, doesn't it? That's much bigger. This is the full extent. This is volume 10, Day of the Lord, isn't it? And then the section closes with the second half of verse 18, right at the end of chapter 1. Take a look at it. The other bookend at the end of the shelf. In the fire of his jealousy, says the second half of verse 18, the whole earth will be consumed. And he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. And then again, marking the end, so that's another bookend. You get another bookend to, to, to bookend off the last section there. Marking the end of the judgment on the surrounding nations. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. After all the stuff against the nations, he ends it with this. I have decided, says the Lord, I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them in my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. See how big the day of the Lord is? Now, when we come to the New Testament part of the Bible and the Gospels and then the, the writings of, of the apostles, the letters, we find that those writers in the New Testament also pick up the phrase, the day of the Lord, because it didn't just finish with the fall of Jerusalem and all of the exile and all of that sort of stuff. They pick it up and they bring it to its ultimate conclusion and really show you what it's pointing to. It's full-blown expression. The day of horrific overthrow, slaughter, and, and the exile at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, those were dreadful days, but they were actually, those days were just shadows, we discover. They're just signposts pointing towards an ultimate reality, the solid, real version a reality that concerns the whole world. And we're to look at these things, aren't we? And see a warning. We're to look at them and see a warning. The warning lights just come on on your dashboard. Whoever you are here, come on tonight. Warning. It's flashing. We mustn't miss it because you ignore this warning at your peril. The first thing about the day of the Lord is... It's a reality. It's a reality. Don't just fall asleep in this. Don't just ignore the light. It's a reality. The Apostle Paul, preaching to you know, the, the, the intellectuals at the Areopagus in Athens, so preaching to the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, he declared this in Acts 17. 
say, he finished his sermon to them saying about God, that he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. It's a reality, it's a certainty. God has set a day, says the Apostle Paul. It's a day set. If you were to open God's diary, did he have a diary, you would see a day with a red ring round it. Day of the Lord. His unfailing, unchanging plans have been set, says the Apostle. What he has said he will do, it's in there. Because God never fails to do what he plans to do. Judgment is coming. Jesus will return. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone joke about that. We don't know when. But we do know, one thing we do know is that that day is closer to today than it was yesterday, right? It's getting closer. The clock is ticking. And the trouble is that people don't really believe it. Our culture doesn't believe it. Popular culture just makes the return of Christ a subject of mockery. It's just a joke to people. You know, you see those bumper stickers, which admittedly, they sound quite funny, don't they? It's kind of like, Jesus is coming back, everyone look busy, that sort of idea. But we are not the first generation to be complacent about this. If you look in um, uh, Peter's, but actually, let's look, look first of all at, actually, have a look, at, look at Zephaniah. And see the complacency even in his generation. Zephaniah chapter 1, just have a look at it. Chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, says God, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. Joking about it. Who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, ah, oh, the Lord will do nothing. He'll do nothing, either good or bad. Yeah, things will just go on the same as they are now. You know, Peter, as I say, talks about mockers in the last days, in our days, the days we live in. He's saying that they will, they will be going around saying, well, where's this coming that he promised? Yeah, where's this coming of the Lord? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You know, we know how things have always been, and they will continue to be that way forever. You don't need to worry about this whole uh, coming day of the Lord thing. Yeah. It's like Richard Dawkins with his buses, isn't it? Yeah. There's probably no God, so just get on with your life and enjoy it. Yeah? Total complacency. Well, there's nothing new there, is there? There have always been those who mock God's warnings, who actually will see the light flashing and just, ah, oh, that's a joke. You know, the, the, the rainbow in the skies after that first great day of the Lord, of the flood, it was there for a dual purpose, wasn't it, when you think about it? It was there to remind us, and you know, our children know this, don't they? To remind us that God has promised never to destroy the whole earth with a flood again. And we see God's promise to, just, to, to, to look after the world, not to destroy it that way. But it is also, whilst it's, whilst it's a, a promise, it is also a, a reminder, isn't it? It's a warning light in the clouds, actually. God did ju judge the world once. That's why, the, that's why it's there. And he will do so again. It's a warning light. That's the first thing. It's a reality. The second thing is, it will be dreadful. It will be dreadful. Not only is the return of Christ as judge a reality, it's a dreadful reality. Jeremiah 
chapter 19 tells us about how Manasseh set up shrines to worship Molech in a valley outside Jerusalem. It was there that they sacrificed the children in the flames. And the generation who returned from exile, we're told, used that valley for dumping the rubbish of the city in. You know, it was always going to be an unclean place. Might as well use it as a rubbish dump. It was where the refuse and, and, and the carcasses and dead animals and, and stuff like that were burned. And Jesus, when he came along, he spoke about the reality of hell a lot, more than anyone else in the New Testament. He called it things like outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Imagine putting up with that for eternity. He spoke of it as a prison from which there's no escape because you can never pay your debts off. And he spoke of it as being like that city dump where the flames never go out and the worms never get hungry. Those are the images Jesus uses. It's not a good place, is it? That's where the day of the Lord is going to lead the wicked. Now, I don't know if you've been following the debate about euthanasia this week. Every time I turn the radio on, it just seems that's the topic they're talking about because of this chap from Australia who, got, uh, who, who had himself euthanized in Switzerland this, uh, this week. One thing struck me about that, the whole debate as people phoning in and talking about that is that the whole world view of, of the sort of Western culture is that we do not believe anymore in the reality of God's judgment nor in its horror. Instead, we believe that death will only bring actually an end to trouble and suffering. It's quite a shift, isn't it, from previous generations? It's... You know, death is the end of suffering. All I have to live for, really, and the only things that make my life worthwhile are enjoyment and freedom from suffering. And there's a constant refrain from people phoning in to the radio. I listen to it over and over again, that life must be worth living. Life's got to be worth living, in their opinion. And if it's not worth living, I deem it not worth living anymore, then I want to go on my own terms, that sort of command over my life and how I, how I end it. Nobody raises the issue of eternity. I was too cowardly, probably or too busy, I'll say too busy, too cowardly to phone in and say something. Because we no longer believe in anything that comes after death. As Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, put it, when I die, I shall rot. That's the view of our world, isn't it? When I die, all that's going to happen to me actually is I'm going to rot. So I might as well get one of those cardboard coffins if they were a bit cheaper, hey, Liz? This is so far from the Christian worldview that used to set the tone of our culture. So far from it. But the return of the judge is a reality. Judgment is a reality. And it will be dreadful for the wicked. But also it will be fair. The judgment will be a fair judgment. That's the third thing to note about it. In fact, actually, this judgment, this day of judgment, this day of the Lord, this settling of accounts, is the only thing that can bring justice and fairness. Think of all the wicked men and women who have died without getting their just desserts in this life. Seen those in the newspaper or, or just in the history books. You learn about them, don't you? Hitler and Mengele, Mao and Pol Pot. You know... Dr. Mengele tortured and experimented on and exterminated children like animals. 
He was never caught. And he just lived out his life in a sunny country where he died one day having his morning swim. To justice. They, they estimate that Mao's Great Leap Forwards, which is the most ironic title given to anything ever, killed 45 million people in four years. Wow. Could any punishment they received in this world actually suffice to pay them back for what they did? Could it really? No. So did they get off lightly then? Well, they did if when I die, I rot. Then they did, didn't they? But not if there's a final judgment. The great and fearful day of the Lord will bring complete and final justice. So is that it then? Because yeah, we're part of this corrupt generation, right? Will there be no hope in this day that's coming? Well, there was hope in the day of Zechariah. That's the interesting thing of this letter. We read it earlier, actually. And you can see it in that last section. So now I'm going to try and lift your spirits slightly and give you hope. I want to show you the hope in this book because there's a terrific hope. In chapter 3, verse 9 onwards, God starts to speak of a remnant. A remnant, that's the word given. That is a number of people. We don't know how many. Maybe a huge number. Maybe a small number. A number that God knows who will be redeemed will be saved, and not, as you read through this, not because they're inherently righteous, but because God, we're told, will purify them himself. God will make them clean from the filth of the world that they live in. God will make them clean. Verse 9 of chapter 3, look, then I will purify the lips of the people, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Verse 11, on that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, the remnant of Israel. I will trust uh, that they that will trust in the name of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? That what you see there, this little group that God purifies. It's a judgment, but it's not a judgment that is, that's chief goal is to completely annihilate the people. It's a judgment that's come to purify a people for himself. He's not just a judge, but he is a rescuer God. He was then and he still is now. See, Jesus may be the judge that God has appointed to judge the world, but he is also the saviour. He's the saviour. And that fearsome wrath which we deserve, he endured it. That's the good news of the New Testament. He endured that wrath. Jesus absorbed the day of the Lord on the cross for us. And because of that, his redeemed will sing a new song. You can see it in verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He fights for you. He fights on your behalf. He wins the victory for you. He's your warrior. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. A beautiful image of God's redeemed people. 
Is there a more wonderful image than that? It's like you know, when you put children to bed, and as they're falling asleep, you sing over them, and they know that they're precious. And they know that they are safe, and they know that they are loved. You know, for the first hearer, what's the important question? For the first people hearing Zephaniah preaching, what's the first question? If they're taking this seriously, surely it is, how can I be amongst that number? That's the group. That's the group I want to be part of. When the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number, don't I? Zephaniah, what have I got to do to be saved? And his replies in chapter 2, have a look. Here's his reply to the people of those days. Chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. There he holds out the hope. Before the day of the Lord arrives, says Zephaniah, before it's too late, whilst it's still the day of salvation, humble yourself and seek the Lord. He's the only refuge. He will be the shelter in that day. It's only him who will be able to shelter you in the day of the Lord. Oh, but our promises are so much better than that. The reality is far better than the shadow, as it always is in the Bible. We have a redeemer who gave his life so that we might live. You know, this book is a really good reminder of just how wicked our hearts are, isn't it? What stops us from just going with the flow of the culture? We live in a corrupt generation, don't we? It's a reminder of our sin. It's humbling to hear, especially if you can look at it and say, do you know what, I'm not, I'm not so different from those people, but for the grace of God. But it is very humbling to hear that Jesus said that God loved the world so much he gave his son so that those who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life, be safe in the day of the Lord. And so there stood Josiah, good King Josiah. He'd heard the law of God read clear as a bell in his presence. What did he do? Well, he took radical action. Josiah was a man of action. And so having torn his clothes and wept for his own sin, what did he do? He dedicated his life to giving his all to God. He was going to live just for God. So much so that the Bible records the testimony of his life as this. And I wish this could go on my gravestone. It's in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 25. Look at this. Let me, let me read it to you. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him. Why? who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. Josiah was totally sold out. He'd heard the warning loud and clear. And he didn't ignore it. Didn't make excuses. Didn't try to argue and say, well, I'm all right, though, aren't I? You know, I'm not like the people around me. No, Josiah bowed his knee. He sought shelter in the Lord, and he surrendered his whole heart to God. And will you follow the example of that boy 